It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Jason, today is National S'mores Day, and I want to start off by acknowledging, A, how funny it is that we have all these odd national days, but B, what is your feeling about s'mores? Coincidentally enough, do you want to know what Laura brought over yesterday? Let me guess. S'mores? She brought over a package of Trader Joe's vegan marshmallows. I think a subtle hint. I think a subtle hint. I have no graham crackers. I have no chocolate, but those are easy things to obtain. In fact, you know what? I think the last time I had s'mores was hanging out the last time I came in to visit your family when we were going to Expo East, Whitney, when we all made s'mores around the campfire in your in the backyard of your parents' house. I think you mean that the is- the fire pit. The fire pit, rather. <laughs> what did it say? Fireplace in the backyard? You said campfire. Oh my God. Camp- I mean, okay. Yeah, it's a fire pit. I guess I was trying to make it sound a little more- Cool. And I was like, we had a campfire in the backyard made out of sticks and wood we harvested ourselves. Not the case. It was a fire pit. But I think I think that's the last time that I had a s'more. Well, now you have a really good excuse to have s'mores for National S'more Day. And just thinking about it makes me drool. And actually, Jason, a suggestion for you and the listener is something really cool that I saw on TikTok recently where I get a lot of my great ideas. Somebody took an ice cream cone and used that instead of a graham cracker, which allows you to stuff the chocolate and the s'mores inside the ice cream cone. And then they wrapped it up in tin foil and put that tin foil over the fire. So the whole thing got perfectly melted. And then you didn't have to deal with that frustrating thing when you bite into the graham cracker and the (laughs) chocolate and marshmallows go everywhere and they're like dripping down your face. Yeah. Now you can treat it like it's an ice cream, but it's like a s'mores in a cone. You can get vegan and gluten-free ice cream cones just as like you can get vegan marshmallows and vegan chocolate. But see, this is leading me to a whole next level infusion where why not leave a little room in the ice cream cone and put for a actual damn, ice cream. actual freaking ice cream on top. <laughs> now we're now like marshmallow flavored oh ice cream. Oh my god! Or Rocky or Road. Chocolate. Oh Rocky yeah. Road. Now we're talking. S'mores in a cone with a fresh scoop of Rocky Road on top. Even if a meteor is going to hit the earth, you don't care because you're happy. You're happy. Oh my yep. god! That sounds amazing. I know this. This makes me want to abandon the recording. What if this is like a <laughs> two minute long recording? And we went off and had s'mores. People would be so confused. (laughs) Or like record it. Like it'd be kind of fun to do an episode where we were out and about, you know, like um, there's a term for that, but like, you know, kind of on the road, we brought people along with us and experience. We could do like a ASMR mukbang. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I had soft serve, like frozen yogurt. I was really craving it. And there aren't that many places that have vegan soft serve in LA, which is kind of surprising. And then the places that are, are like a little too far away to be convenient or like they have weird hours or they're not reliable. And I I just have recently found that frustration. 
We do love yoga urt, which is the top in terms of not only plant-based, but also really high quality ingredients. The problem for me though, is that most of their soft serve is made from almond milk, which I'm super sensitive to, so cannot have. They usually have one almond-free flavor last time I checked, but I have to say I don't really love the flavor, so it doesn't excite me. I kind of just want like that pure vanilla soft serve. That's what I was craving. Unfortunately, I went to this place nearby that did not hit the spot. It had a weird taste. It was cool because they had... It was just like a average frozen yogurt place, but they had two vegan flavors, maybe three. Maybe there was a sorbet, but they had two vanilla soft serves, one made with almond milk, one made with coconut milk. Sounded promising, really was a letdown. So now I need to go find one that satisfies me. There's also a place in Los Angeles called Magpies, which is very sugary, but it really hits the spot. So I'll probably be going there soon. Where else can you get? I mean, Locally, I know, had that really great soft serve for a while. I don't know if they still do. And I, I actually feel like some of the locally shops went out of business, sadly. Like maybe one in West Hollywood. I'm not sure if they're still open. And then the other place, which I haven't checked in on, is Press Brothers. They had that fantastic, really high-quality Froyo too. Also, by the way... What is the difference between soft serve and frozen yogurt, Jason? Are they the same thing or are they technically different? They're technically different because soft serve ice cream, the mix does not inherently have any probiotics or living organisms in it. Whereas Froyo, frozen yogurt, vegan or non-vegan, does have living probiotics that are infused into the mixture. So soft serve, no probiotics. Frozen yogurt has probiotics. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm just putting it out there that I am on the hunt to be satisfied. And it's it's one of those things where I'll I'll have it once and I'll be I'll feel fulfilled. I don't need it all the time. But yeah, I've I've really been wanting that. I think it's also it's interesting with when it comes to vegan ice creams, which we talked in length about on National Ice Cream Day. Right. On a different Yet another national fucking holiday for food. We'll link to that in the show (laughs) notes if you haven't listened to the ice cream episode yet. Gosh, just talking about it is making me crave like Rocky Road or or Oreo. Oreo ice cream is something that I've been having a lot of cravings for. And I think Natamu at least has um, a vegan and gluten-free Oreo ice cream. Yeah. So that I'm like just salivating almost as much as I was about the s'more conversation. Can I, can I tell you, can I bring up something that is, uh, it makes me a bit sad to talk about? <laughs> okay, sure. So as many of the places and brands as you brought up, there's still one place from the annals of culinary history. And spoiler alert for the listener who may not know us personally, or maybe it's your first time digging in, or you're just getting to know us here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Whitney and I, one of our our great joys is food. And I think the sensual experience, the tactile experience of the flavor, the texture, the dining experience, which the dining experience we're not really getting very much of at the time of this recording. But we are so passionate about food for all the reasons, you know, in terms of nourishing the body, healing the body, bringing joy, bringing excitement. That all being said, one of my favorite places of all time, RIP, ready for this, Whitney? Lulu's Apothecary in New York City. Yes. Yep. My heart. I agree. Breaks thinking about it. This was a place in New York City that when I lived in New York, it wasn't yet 
open. It opened after I left New York and moved to California, but up till you know this year. Actually, earlier this year, I went to New York. So yeah, I guess every year since I have moved out of New York City, which was when did I leave? Late 2006. I've gone back at least one to two times a year to New York City for work, visiting friends, whatnot. Lulu's Apothecary was a incredible dairy-free vegan ice cream shop in the East Village. My favorite, one of my favorite neighborhoods. I love the Lower East Side. I love East Village, and the flavors were outrageously good. The mouthfeel, the toppings, and also it was the experience. We talk about the the dining experience. It was modeled. The interior was designed like an old school, like cream soda shop, like the kind of ice cream shop maybe our parents or grandparents went to. A lot of dark woods, a lot of like turn of the century type of light fixtures and things like that. And I just wanted to bring that up because I've been hearing reports from friends in other cities, Whitney, that some of their favorite restaurants and and you know ice cream shops, et cetera, are closing down because of the financial hardship of COVID. And it breaks my heart not only on the level to hear that because of the the joy and the pleasure we get from the experience of going to these places that we want to support, but it's also that as an artist and a chef and for both of us lovers of food, knowing that someone's creativity, right? And in many cases, pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars and in, in years sometimes into saving to put into a restaurant or ice cream shop or a bar or whatever it is, it just, it hurts my heart so much to see these people going under, you know, because it's for anyone who's never opened a restaurant or worked in a restaurant, it's not something that you just like, you know, pop out. I mean, it's something that requires a lot of financial capital it requires a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and not in a cliche way. It's a hard business. So I bring up Lulu's just because I'm seeing a lot of it with right now where you know, I DM with friends in, in like Portland and New York and other places like, oh yeah, that place closed, that place closed. And I don't know, just, it's, it hurts my heart to know that we're not going to be able to enjoy the incredible creativity of some of these artists. Yeah, it is really interesting for a lot of different reasons. I actually really enjoy using Yelp and I have the app on my phone and it started notifying me and reminding me to support restaurants. And that's something I actually do pretty frequently. And it is fascinating because, you know, food in general is a, is such a complicated subject matter. And we've touched upon this a lot in recent episodes. And I struggle to, I think it was in our episode with Tony, which may not have come out by the time this episode has come out, but a little teaser for those of you listening, we talked about food being a privilege and how each of us have different relationships to it. And there's so many factors. It's the money, it's the access. And then there's also this level of like guilt and shame around food, which we talked about in that episode. But to get into that a little, you know, for me, it, it does become a bit overwhelming to make food decisions. And when it comes back to this restaurant thing, I'll, I'll kind of get in my head thinking, all right, am I eating out too much? And I, I've noticing my judgments around that is it's like, am I spending too much money eating out at restaurants? Am I wasting too much? You know, when you go to a restaurant, there's pa- more packaging sometimes. Although I would actually like to look into data because a lot of food, unless you're you're growing it yourself or you're buying strictly from farmers markets, the produce sections and getting everything in bulk, there's a lot of food on the shelves that is packaged. So I'm curious how much of an environmental impact it has when you get something in a to-go container versus like getting a microwavable dish. Obviously, to me, that seems pretty much equivalent. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be microwaved. It could be put in the oven 
or even like a box of pasta and a jar of pasta sauce, unless you're making this stuff from scratch, there's packaging involved. So the environmental toll of restaurants seems a little complex and there's more than meets the eye. So I want to research that more. And the financial side of it, usually it's more expensive to eat at a restaurant, but then you have to factor in the time it takes to make a meal and to go grocery shopping or order food online. And now with COVID, some people are concerned about eating out because it puts them in contact with the staff. And I actually saw a post that I haven't cross-referenced, so I don't know how accurate this is, but how COVID can last in the containers for uh, a plastic container for a, a good amount of time. And that's why a lot of people wipe their anything down once they get it from the grocery store. It really depends on the material, A. And then B, it's recommended to transfer things into a different bowl or a plate when you get home. So I've been practicing that. The frustrating thing from getting food from a restaurant is that they usually like wrap it in plastic. They give you a plastic bag or they'll give you utensils even sometimes if you don't ask for them or they'll give you like napkins and packets of condiments and all of this stuff that weighs on me a lot when it comes to environmental waste. So long story short, it, it feels so complicated to go to a restaurant these days. And then when I was dining in more often, there's that another level of like sitting down and paying the wait staff a tip and, and you know, you feel good about it sometimes. But then if you're worried about money, there's that factor. And so long story short, I think actually supporting those businesses can be tough, especially if you're already strapped for time, for money, you're concerned about COVID and you're concerned about the environment. I can see why it's a tricky time to decide if you're going to support these businesses or not. Do you feel that way too, Jason? I share some of the sentiments you expressed. For me, you know, pretty consistently, if I look at the expenditures, say on my tax returns, just, you know, not to get too deep into that subject, but spending money either on ingredients or food is a pretty large line item anytime I look at my tax deductions every year. So I've been aware, especially since being in the food business, and as I suppose my project load or the things I've been working on or going out to you know lunches and dinners and business meetings and all of those things, that my food expenses are typically really high year after year. This year, I've noticed that my spending on food has gone drastically down simply because I haven't been going out to eat as much. I find that on average, I'll probably get takeout once a week. And I prefer that. And it's usually a day of the week, say a couple days ago when you and I had, I think in one day, maybe we recorded a solo episode and then two guests. I don't know. It was one day this past week where it was like a big recording day where you and I spent like almost four hours recording podcasts. And I thought, you know what? I do not have the energy to make dinner tonight. You know, I'm just going to get like a pizza or whatever. So I've noticed that it's impacted my bottom line as I have been being a lot more conservative with my spending during COVID just for necessity's sake. But also, I really feel like I've been enjoying cooking a lot more. It's probably because I'm, I'm still in a new relationship and my girlfriend, Laura, loves food. We cook together. That's always a, a really lovely bonding experience, I find, to have someone to cook with. So by virtue of you know doing my best to save money, cut expenses, I haven't been dining out as much. I haven't been getting takeout. But yeah, about one, maybe twice a week, maybe at the most, I'll just be like, I don't feel like doing this. I'm going to go get something from a restaurant. But to your point, Whitney, you know, it's, it is a bit of a conundrum, right? Because I want to be fiscally responsible and I do really want to 
reduce my expenses and save as much money as possible right now. And I don't want these places we love to go under. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's so heartbreaking to me that these places where I feel like they're family or I know the chefs or I know the owners or I love the quality of their food, when they get shut down for whatever reason, I don't know, it just feels like something's lost. Like, oh, I'm first of all, is this person even going to have the gumption or the fortitude to get back up and reinvent themselves in the food industry? Because we know how much money and time and effort that takes. But also selfishly, you know, oh, I'm never going to have that pizza again or that sushi or that pasta or whatever it is. And I guess I'm trying to say that I'm a little bit conflicted because I, I would like to spend more money at these restaurants to ensure that they stay open. But I'm also trying my best to keep myself afloat financially right now. So it, it's a bit of a mental struggle sometimes. For sure. And I think this is an important conversation to have because I think that there's sometimes a feeling of loneliness around these struggles when it comes to food. And food is such a complicated, personal thing. And there's just so many factors that go into it. And sometimes I feel incredibly overwhelmed or stressed about it. And almost every single day, I experience some stress around food. Really? Oh, yeah. Because wow, there's a lot of different reasons for it. One is just... I have a tendency to not stock up for long periods of time. Like I enjoy going to the grocery store a lot. And it's different during COVID because going to the grocery store is a different experience now. Whereas it used to feel easier and, and more freedom. You know, you just pop in and it's it's challenging getting used to all the changes of the grocery stores. And as I mentioned, I think in, in that episode with Tony, I felt so stressed out about grocery shopping when COVID was first developing and they were super careful and you had to wait in lines every time. I, I could not stand that. I got anxiety when I would go grocery shopping because I felt so much stress from just COVID in general. And then there was things weren't well stocked. And luckily, that's changed a lot, at least in Los Angeles. But it still feels different. It's just not quite that same experience that I got used to after many years of grocery shopping. But yeah, I mean, there are times when I'm struggling financially or things are just tighter financially. Even just going grocery shopping feels really tough. And, you know, stocking up on a lot of food sometimes feels daunting because you can spend a lot of money. And all of these moments where I'm like weighing out the pros and cons of every single food I put in the basket. And then I have a tendency, I think part of the reason that I don't like to stock up too much is I really struggle with not eating everything at once. There is this joke going around, actually. So I, I felt less alone in this. But there was a funny joke about how when everybody was stocking up for COVID, yeah, they would like eat everything they had. It was there was like this panic, like we got to stock up, like we don't know how long we're going to be in quarantine. It could be weeks or months. Who knows? And then you would go buy all this stuff and you'd eat it all in like a few days. And I, <laughs> you know, there was like the stress of COVID at first where. I remember like allowing myself to indulge a little bit more in foods I, you know, that were more processed than I would normally eat. And I was like, it's okay. I'm stressed out because of COVID. So I'll buy all this junk food. And then like that continued for weeks, if not months. Then I started to feel weird about all the processed food. And so that was another level of it. It's like restraining myself a little. And yeah, I mean, this is honestly... Even just discussing it, I think I'm acknowledging there's all sorts of little stress points. So going back, the stress of like either trying to pace myself when it comes to food, 
which by the way, a little plug, we, we love to shout out brands and products we love. And we usually do this at the end of our episodes. But one brand I want to shout out now is called K-Safe. And I can't remember if I mentioned them before on the podcast, but they have really helped me a lot because they make these safes specifically for the kitchen. You can use them for whatever you want, but they're designed for food and they come in three different sizes and they have timers on them. And the idea is that if you are like me, where you might buy a lot of food and you have trouble not eating it all at once, you can put the food in there and set a timer on it so that you only consume it like every 10 hours or, or, or every day, once a day, whatever it is for you. This is also great for kids because if your kids have trouble restraining themselves with candy or something, you can put it in the case safe and, and nobody can unlock it. It's got a timer on it. And once it's set, it's locked. And it's really great. I actually recommended it to a friend of mine who's a journalist. And he says it's been a game changer for him. And he actually wrote an article on it. If I can find it, I'll link to his article. Because I actually have not read it myself. But he used it in a COVID piece because he's been working from home so much. And he was telling me how it was really tough when he would go and buy all this food and then like eat them all, like food bars. He was telling me that he struggled with. And I struggle with that too. If I could, I probably would eat like 90% food bars, to be honest. I love food bars so much, Jason. Wait, you mean like you mean like protein bars, nut bars, snack bars, that kind yes, of bar? Yes. I honestly would love to just live off of those. Kind of like you know, that product Soylent, how technically you could live off the Soylent drink. And you could probably live off most protein shakes. If I just... Maybe I'll do this sometime as an experiment, even if it might not be the healthiest, most nutritious way of living. I'd be curious to see how I would feel if all I ate were food bars for a few days. And I'm not talking like your junk food processed, like candy-like food bars. I'm talking about like the kinds that are very well formulated and simple ingredients, like some that come top of my mind. Number one for me is Boo Foods, B-H-U Foods. And that was actually my inspiration for getting the K-Safe because I would get these Boo Bars, which are vegan and keto, low carb. They are cookie dough flavored, most of them. And just thinking about them, I, I my brain gets so fired up about. I mean, like I literally feel addicted to these bars, and I've had had. To, I can't believe you didn't know this about me. Uh, no, that's a word. I mean, you don't you don't whip out that word in reference to yourself <laughs> that often, Whitney. I don't, but my brain reacts to those bars in a very unique way, and it's not like they have like some addictive ingredient in them that I know of, like MSG or whatever. They are just so satisfying. And when I was really strict vegan keto, these bars were like my favorite treat on the planet because they're made of pea protein. Let me see. I used to know the ingredients by heart because I've tried to make them and I was never able to make them at home and taste the way that I wanted to. They do have sustainable palm oil in them. If, if you, palm oil is a sensitive subject, but they use a red palm oil. And I've done a lot of research. There are red palm oils that seem to be eco and vegan-friendly, cruelty-free. So palm oil, pea protein, cashews are a big staple of it. They have sugar-free chocolate chips in most of them. And like a start... I don't know if it was tapioca. There's some... Anyways, 
pretty basic ingredients like coconut oil or some oil or some sort. Um, no, that's the palm oil. Anyways, I don't, I don't mean to go on a whole tangent about boo bars. Uh, we will link to them in the show notes if you want to check them out. They're a little hard to find. And there's two different versions, by the way. You can go on their website. They have a re- refrigerated version and the shelf stable. And in Los Angeles, there's a few stores that have the refrigerated version and then a few that have the shelf stable. I'm not a big fan of the latter. The refrigerated boo bars are my favorite. <laughs> Man, it's a big shout out. Big shout but it out. It is a big shout out. And I used to do be in an ambassador program for them, but I'm currently not, unfortunately. They used to send me their bars every month and it was like my favorite time of the month. Uh, no longer the case, but I'm still shouting them out anyways because I adore them. And outside of the Boo Foods tangent, that is what led me to get the K-Safe because I would buy these bars and I would eat like three in a sitting because they're that good. And I just... Every time I would open one, I'd, I'd immediately like want another one as soon as I finished it. So I got the K-Safe to help me rein myself in because it was like I was really struggling to control myself. And I think each of us have foods like this unless you're really regimented. What is it for you, Jason? Like, <laughs> If there is one food that you have the least amount of willpower with, what would that be? It's an interesting thing because as you were as you were talking about your experience with this, Whitney, I was really examining if I have any food addictions or have had any of those. And I think that I've, yeah, I've talked about this on a previous episode. I can't recall which one off the top of my head. Maybe you'll know as I'm discussing this, Whitney. But when I was talking about how I noticed that when I would get depressed or lonely or heartbroken or in a breakup situation or any kind of that type of, I guess, emotional processing, I noticed that for most of my life, I've had a tendency to reach for sugary things, sweet things. So I think in general, you know, the category that I've had the most trouble with has been sweets. Probably specifically, I think cookies and chocolate. You know, I'm pretty good with ice cream in the sense that I, I'm not the dude who's going to sit down and polish off a whole pint in one sitting. I tend to be pretty judicious with frozen treats. But if you give me like, okay, here in LA, any Angelinos? Close to my house-ish, there's a bakery called Cake Girl that is a dedicated gluten-free, soy-free bakery in the back of a pharmacy. Like It's the most bizarre, indie, weird thing. And the couple that runs it, they have cupcakes, they have cheesy bread, they have cookies, they have cakes. It's really, really good and very clean. It's not the kind of stuff that you're just going to feel gacked out on sugar afterward. But this stuff, if I go there, Whitney, it's hard for me to leave with one thing. You know, I don't think I've ever gone in there and been like, I'll have a cupcake, thank you. Yeah, I'll leave with three, four, five things. And they're sitting in my cabinet. I have a special cat-proof food cabinet in my house because the cats have deviously... Actually, cat. My cat, Lynx, who is a tabby cat. If any uh, of the listeners are tabby cat caretakers, I don't want to say owners, you know they can be extremely devious creatures. So a tabby-proof food cabinet. And it's hard, Whitney. That's... Yeah. I think like cupcakes, cookies, muffins, those kind of things in general are probably the toughest thing for me. And going back to it, I noticed that there's a pretty consistent emotional component for me. It's boredom. It's sadness. It's depression. It's loneliness. It's feeling heartbroken. That melange of emotions, whatever umbrella you want to put those under, is generally when I tend to overeat on those specific kind of sweets. I'm a little offended that you've never told me about this Cake Girl Bakery. When did you discover this and why have I never tried it? I thought we discussed it. We didn't? 
I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm a bad best friend. I'm a very bad best friend. Okay, so to take it back, our good friend, Melissa Glashevsky, who runs a really wonderful food brand called Fork in Plants, we will link actually to Melissa's offerings. She does online cooking classes. She has a bunch of great content on social media. We will link to her and all of her uh, links in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And earlier, one of our favorite drinks, Whitney, that you were so kind to introduce me to, Mad Tasty, run by our friend Trey and one of our favorite musicians, uh, Ryan Tedder from One Republic, started this sparkling CBD beverage, Mad Tasty, which we will also link to. So if you, dear listener, want to get your hands on some and it's in your area, it's a delicious, amazing, super awesomely branded CBD drink. Shout out to Mad Tasty and Trey and Ryan, the whole team. They gave us some cases of their new flavor at that time, which was Unicorn Tears. And they gave us so much that Trey was like, hey, give it to your friends, your, you know, your influencer buddies, like spread the word. And it was, it was more Mad Tasty than I could drink, Whitney. I mean, it was so many cases of it. And Melissa responded to a DM of mine and said, hey, I want to come by and get some Mad Tasty. So I got a little care package together with a Mad Tasty for Melissa, and she brought me a sack of like a cookie and a muffin or a cookie and a cupcake. And I'm like, what the hell is this? She's like, oh, it's from Cake Girl. I was like, what the hell is Cake Girl? She's like, wait, you don't know what Cake Girl is? I said, no. She said, it's a gluten-free, vegan, soy-free bakery that's like five minutes from your house. I was like, I've been living here over two years. I said, how long have they been open? She's like, oh, they've been open like a year and a half. I'm like, what fucking rock am I living under? So I apologize, Whitney. Very bad best friend, very bad business partner. not telling you about this. I thought I had mentioned it. But Melissa was the first person who introduced me. And now it is way too close to the house, Wit. Like it's too damn close. You know, I can go there any time of day, get me a cookies and cream cupcake, a matcha donut, a slice of lemon cake, a cheesy biscuit. I got to take you. It's crazy good. Crazy good. Well, you could blame it on COVID because we don't see each other or share food as often as we used to. So that's fine. That's to no, know, but I, I still feel like I'm slacking on my pimping. The fact that I did not share with you. I'm slacking on <laughs> my pimping. I also like that Mad Tasty was like part of the story for discovering it because we love them so much. And it's just funny how like you can get introduced to things through all these interesting means. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Going back to the K-Safe you could get that stuff from the bakery, Jason, and lock it up and then allow yourself to have a little bit more willpower for however long you want to save it for. But here's the thing, though. Here, let me ask you this on a practical level, because I imagine myself getting a K-safe. I picture myself putting the cookies and the donuts and the cupcakes and all that in there. But once the timer goes off, say 24 hours later, and the safe is open, <laughs> what is to stop me from scarfing all of them at once once the safe is back open? There's nothing to stop me from doing that. Certainly not. But that what I found a method that works really well. And by the way, this episode is not sponsored by KSafe. We, I think I have an affiliate link for them. So we'll link to them in the show notes. And if you click on it, we may get a little kickback from your purchase at no additional cost to you, which is the lovely thing about affiliate programs. But just in full transparency, we're not sponsored by them or anybody in this current episode. We just love talking about brands that we like. And... um. The case safe, I found that if you just take out what you want right now and put it back and lock it up right away, that works. And this is the thing a lot of us feel with willpower is it's like, if it's not locked up, what's stopping you from going back to get seconds, thirds, etc. So you, it does require a little bit of willpower. The other thing that you could do if you want to, if you're really struggling with willpower in all, in all seriousness, because 
food is really challenging for a lot of people, which is why I want to talk about this. You can get multiple case safes and divvy out portions and lock them up for different periods of time. And it's cool because case safe comes in, in different sizes and I have one of each size. And so the big one I use for like chips or bags of snacks. And then there's one um, medium size, which, you know, will be for different size uh, items. There's a small size that's good for like little things like cookies or candies. It's really great. I think that they deserve a lot of um, acknowledgement for what they've created. The one downside, though, I will say, if you're getting excited about this, it does not work in the refrigerator. And this was an issue for me with the Boo Bars because they're meant to be refrigerated. Unless you're going to eat them quickly, they can last, I think, for at least 24 hours outside of the refrigerator. But they're very perishable. So for perishable items, I went one step further, which might sound crazy. But if, if you are into this, and again, you need some help with your willpower, it's worth going the extra mile for this. And my friends that got into the KF, the K-Safe did the same thing eventually. Is they make You can get any type of safe for money or um, whatever like that has a little lock on it. If it's made of a metal material, you can put that in the refrigerator. And I'll link to the one that I have. I actually have a really cute little pink safe that's meant for like petty cash or whatever. And it has like your just a your average little lock with a key. You put that in the refrigerator and then you lock it and you put the key in the case safe. So you need both unless, again, your willpower is strong enough not to go get the key. So you could actually just get a safe and lock it and put it somewhere else or give it to somebody to to hold for you. So there's a lot of different scenarios. But I actually I have so technically four food safes, one in the fridge for my boo bars or anything else perishable. And it really does help. and. It's interesting. You might think that this is a little extreme, but you know, everybody, like I said, has a different relationship to food and there's nothing wrong with indulging. You know, going back to the conversation about food bars, I would often struggle like when I would sit around and just want to eat bars all day and I would I would kind of judge myself or shame myself and and we talked about this in the episode with Tony that's coming up, but that's actually coming out on August 21st, so depending on when you're listening. Um, it may or may not be out yet, but we'll link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com for you to find. In that episode, we touched upon how there's a lot of shame around food. And I think for someone like me, I grew up with so much food shame, and that was related to my body shame. It's hard to talk about this because I don't want to, I don't even know how to express it. I'm just going to say it that both my parents kind of had their own versions of food shame with me. And gosh, I love my parents. I know they're so well-intentioned and they gave me such a great life. And they are... I just have a very good relationship with them for the most part. But I think most of us struggle with our parental figures and we are impacted by them in one way or another. And for me, one of the big ways that I was impacted was around food. And I also am careful not to blame them for that. You know, I, I think it's important to take personal responsibility, but it's challenging when it comes to our parental figures because a lot of our lives are shaped when we're, when we're young. And a lot of them inadvertently or unknowingly project their own f- behavior or mindset onto us as kids without realizing the impact. And I think in my parents' case, both of them have some food issues. 
My dad came from a family that had a tendency to be overweight and struggle. There's diabetes that runs in my dad's side of the family. There's a lot of uh, food challenges with them. And there was a lot of judgment around body size. And so my dad, I think, was really trying to figure out like how he could keep himself healthy, but also not gain too much weight. And I think he has figured that out in a very balanced way for himself. In fact, just in the past few years, he had kind of a drastic weight loss simply through diet and exercise. And I I think from what I know that it was done in a healthy way, but who knows exactly what happened. I haven't asked him and I certainly could. But um, I remember growing up, my dad just having a lot of like concerns about food. And I think his intentions were to teach me about food, but I received it as a kid and a teenager as like shame or um, very restrictive. And I think that that partially contributed to my disordered eating. For instance, I remember very distinctly, like I was getting orange juice from the fridge one time and my dad was, and, you know, I perceived orange juice as like a nutritious thing. It came from a fruit. Like how bad could it be? I loved orange juice growing up. And my dad one time pointed out, he's like, you know, that has a lot of sugar. And like that just memory is burned in my mind because suddenly I was perceiving orange juice, which I thought was so pure and simple and good for you to be bad for you, right? And there was a lot of instances like that with our family. And we would go through phases where we would eat more processed foods and then phases where we would eat less processed foods. We ate a lot of home-cooked meals. My dad actually made most of the meals in our family and they were so nutritious. I remember learning about avocado from him for the first time. And he just put so much passion. Like There was a lot of positive experiences with food, but... I think I just kind of grew up feeling very conflicted about food. Not everybody has that experience. And then with my mom, there was also several layers. I think more, she has a lot of fears around weight. And she was a fearful that my sister and I would be susceptible to gaining weight uh, or being overweight because of my dad's side of the family. So there was like, unfortunately, a lot of like, judgment around my dad's side of the family because her side of the family doesn't struggle with their weight as far as I know. Like most of my family members on my mom's side were either very skinny naturally, like no matter what they ate, they were just skinny or it didn't seem like they were struggling with it. And so it was kind of like this idea of, well, be careful because you don't want to end up like your dad's side of the family, which, which actually makes me really sad to say because the more I learn about body shaming and diet culture, the more I just feel awful that I had that perception growing up, like this kind of my mom's family versus my dad's family and how they look, you know, and all that. And I think my mom, just like my dad, had very good intentions, like from her perspective and a lot of people's perspectives, it's like they equate health with being skinny. Right. And there's like, if you're overweight, you're not healthy or you're not trying hard enough or you're letting yourself, I mean, Diet culture and body shaming is rampant in the US and many parts of the world. And it's a huge issue that I have recently really dug into. And I still feel like I have so much more to explore. And so, my big point being that, like, food that's part of why food is so complicated and why I think a lot about food and kind of weigh out what I'm eating a lot. And one thing I've been trying to practice is more intuitive eating. 
which is really interesting for anybody who has struggled with body shame, disordered eating, or judgment around diet. Read about intuitive eating. And I will link to some of the books that I've read looking into like anti-diet culture and intuitive eating, body shaming, all of these works has been so enlightening for me and actually therapeutic because what I realized through reading about intuitive eating is like, it really is about just eating whatever you want to eat. And that concept is so hard for me. Like giving yourself permission to literally eat something just because you want it. Yeah. I feel like that mentality has been... In our society, especially in the American culture, we have been discouraged to do that. There is so much like, be careful what you eat. Like, don't, oh, I know you want a burger, but you should really get a salad. You know, like you want some ice cream, but like limit it to, you know, the restrictive eating and the conditional eating. And we talked about with Tony, again, I keep teasing that episode, but we really dug into that with her, the infighting with vegans and the judgments and all of that. So I know I've been talking for a while, Jason. I'm curious about your experience, but I wanted to give some context for mine and what I've been learning and how the case, you know, things like case safe are really great. But like, I also want to caution people not to use it as a tool to restrict yourself too much. And to, if you're struggling with disordered eating, you have to be really mindful of all these types of decisions and balance it out. And that's something that I've really been working on a lot in my life. I'm curious about the intuitive eating, Whitney, because one of the things I guess that I have a challenge with when I've... Well, not even attempted. When I've listened to what I thought my body was asking for, it was this conundrum of, okay, if I sit with my hunger and I'm noticing that I am hunger is present, right? My stomach's growling or you know, I can feel hungry. Trying to discern between what my mind is telling me out of maybe a craving or maybe an emotional transfixation on food, as I mentioned before, of, you know, are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you heartbroken? Okay, like let's do a mental evaluation versus maybe a deeper sense of body intuition that is saying, oh, go get cauliflower right now. Even if it doesn't make sense why my body is asking for cauliflower, I've had the experience of listening to my body and then eating that food, even though it de- didn't necessarily made sense, it, you know, it was like, why is my body asking for asparagus or cauliflower or whatever it is? But then eating it and feeling almost like a deeper sense of nourishment, if that makes sense. And I- I'm curious for you in your practice and your study of intuitive eating, how you're seeing how we can more skillfully listen to what our body is asking for versus maybe what our cravings or our desires or, our, or the attachments of the mind are asking for. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. And that's why this is such a complicated thing. And there's just so much to learn. I found, I pulled up an article, which I'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's called The 10 Principles of Intuitive Eating. And, and this is a, a website specifically about intuitive eating. And here's the framework that they use. Number one is to reject the diet mentality. It's that false hope of losing weight quickly, easily, and permanently. And this is super fascinating. I mean, this is what I mean by anti-diet culture. When you dig into that diet mentality, it really shows you a lot of false hope and lies that we've been fed. And I look back over my life and I am really blown away by it when I take the time to reflect. So part of this is that you need to let go of what the media has been telling us, what influencers often tell us. Um, hey, just do these things and you'll look like me. And 
I'll help you lose weight quickly. I mean, I've become incredibly sensitive to anybody talking about weight loss. And I've done this too. I mean, I had to examine my own false promises that I've shared with people. And when I wrote my book, The Vegan Ketogenic Diet Cookbook, I was very intentional to mention weight loss as infrequently as possible. Publisher wanted me to mention it as a benefit, which it is. A lot of people do the keto diet to lose weight, but I wanted to emphasize the other benefits that I experienced and researched from it. Um, But that was tough. And weight loss culture is all over the place from well-meaning people. And I actually am at a point where if I see someone talking about weight loss, I, I actually, from my personal reasons, but also professionally, don't want to associate myself too much with people that are promoting weight loss because I think it's a slippery slope. So that's number one. Number two is to honor your hunger. So this comes back to what you're saying, Jason. They, in this article, position that as keeping your body biologically fed with adequate energy and carbohydrates. <laughs> love how they mention carbohydrates because I maybe right now, carbohydrates are... A lot of people have mixed feelings about them. This is the pros and cons of the keto diet. I would say keeping your body biologically fed with adequate nutrition because I see pros and cons to carbs. Honestly, from my research and experience, I think finding a balance is key. I don't think either extreme of high carb or low carb work for everybody. You have to figure out what works for you. And there's a lot of great research about the benefits of switching from to using fat for your fuel uh, versus a lot of us are using an excessive amount of carbohydrates. That's a whole other conversation. So that's where I would, I would change this as saying like, How do you keep your body feeling nourished with nutritious food? And that each of us have to figure out what works for us. And you might need to work with a professional to figure that out, a nutritionist or a a medical professional of some sort. Number three is to make peace with food. So this is about giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. It's not about what you should or shouldn't eat because that can lead to feelings of deprivation. And those feelings can build into uncontrollable cravings and sometimes binging. And sometimes the process of allowing yourself to eat what you consider as forbidden foods can help you actually reduce those cravings and the guilt. And that to me is incredibly therapeutic. Number four is to challenge the food police. And that is not only your internal critic, but the other people around you. And you know, in my case, my parents I, were kind of food police. I've seen people on social media being food police. Jason and I have talked about the vegan community being very much food police. So if you're experiencing that, minimize it or delete it entirely if you can or you need to, because that will make it easier for you to be less critical about food for yourself. Number five is to discover the satisfaction factor. Ooh, you're going to like this one, Jason, because it starts with the Japanese, (laughs) which I know you have so much respect for Japanese culture. They have the wisdom to keep pleasure as one of their goals of healthy living. Is this where they talk about stop when you're 80% full? Let me see. I don't think this one says that, but share what that means for you. I'm I'm curious. Yeah. One of the, I suppose, principles that I've learned through Japanese culture, which as Whitney mentioned, I'm, I'm semi-obsessed with different aspects of art and design and philosophy and food. 
that in terms of the centenarians, the Blue Zones research that Dan Butner pioneered many years ago, that I've integrated a lot of that information research into my work on longevity and eating, is that uh, the uh, Okinawans specifically that are have the highest percentage of centenarians, that's people who are living to the age of 100 and beyond healthfully, that they have uh, an 80% rule, which is that they stop eating a meal when they perceive, again, there's no way to measure this, they perceive that they're about 80% full. They don't eat to fullness and they never overeat. And if we look into a little bit of the deeper research on longevity and the lengthening of the telomeres, the telomeres are the little antenna on the ends of the chromosomes of our DNA. And there's been some really interesting epigenetic research that as those telomeres shorten as we age, also then our lifespan decreases. So one of the ways that, that I've seen in, in some interesting research studies that we'll link to in the show notes as well is that caloric restriction can help to maintain the length of the telomeres and therefore potentially increase our lifespan or at least maintain it. So with the 80% rule, I think it goes back to the research of the caloric restriction that we're not taking in too many calories, we're not taking in too much mass that the body then has to over-process to get rid of. So I've actually been practicing that, Whitney, a lot the past few years. I, I remember when I started on my vegan lifestyle journey, which was I just celebrated 22 years of veganism, 23 years plant-based. Like When I first did it, I oh my God, I would overeat like a mofo. I remember going out to restaurants, going on road trips, hanging out with other vegan friends, and we would literally eat till we were so full, we felt like we needed to pass out. And I do not miss that. I mean, I remember eating so much, Whitney. Specifically, I remember a meal I went to with, uh, with Gary Yarovsky. He was on speaking tour, and we went to a place in Philadelphia called Gianna's Grill. And we ordered like three giant vegan Philly cheesesteaks. We ordered like five cannolis, a slice of lasagna, a slice of pizza. We ate everything. And it was one of those meals where I felt just so sick. I literally felt sick to my stomach. I ate so much food. So this 80% rule that the Okinawans talk about in the blue zones, I think for me, if I stop myself when I'm like 70 to 80% full weight, I feel great. Like I feel, I feel satisfied, but I don't feel like I need to collapse after a meal. And, and I just, I don't want to feel that way anymore. It's like, it's kind of an awful feeling where you've, you've enjoyed this meal, but you've overindulged to the point where you're not even enjoying it anymore. Right. I mean, again, this is, <laughs> this is where it gets very complicated. And I've tried so many different ways of eating, literally in the sense of what my diet is. And even within the vegan way of living, I've done keto, I've done high carb, I've done raw, I've done, you know, all these different iterations of it. And it's an ongoing thing. I have not found the way. And I don't know if anybody has found the way. I actually question it whenever somebody says that they do. And, you know, there's all these different advice and perspectives and doctors and research and on and on and on. And I enjoy it for the most part, but I, I do find that intuitive eating feels like a lovely thing, even if it's just a, a therapeutic, temporary thing that you do for yourself. And this idea of just paying attention to pleasure and fullness is really key. And that's actually the next point in this 10 principles is feel your fullness, to honor your fullness, trust yourself that you're giving yourself the foods that you desire, and listening for body signals. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. Some part of it is we're not taught 
these things. Uh, part of it is that processed foods can be incredibly confusing. I was mentioning like with Boo Foods and joking, like what is it that makes me feel so addicted to them? Is it like some secret ingredient you know, that keeps you hooked? And some foods literally have ingredients like MSG is one of them, right, Jason? Like it's designed to keep you wanting more. And it's like triggering your brain to like not stop eating it. Yeah. I want to give like a super quick old school throwback. So at the very beginning of my health journey in 1995, when my grandfather had passed away from cancer, one of the very first books I got into and one of the first doctors I got into, and this was before I got into Dean Ornish or Neil Bernard or, or a lot of the plant-based doctors that were doing things in the 90s, I read a book called Excitotoxins by Dr. Russell Blaylock. And he talked about a class of manufactured uh, food substances, uh, whereas monosodium glutamate, MSG, was in that list of excitotoxins that actually have a deleterious neurological effect on the brain, right? They trick your brain into craving more of this thing and actually start to wreak havoc and damage the neurons. They, they actually damage your neurochemistry, these excitotoxins. So I remember reading that when I was like, what, 19 years old and being like, holy shit, I'm never going to have MSG again. And of course, you know, there are places you go out to eat and you wonder, right? Sometimes I wonder, even if it says like no MSG on the menu, I'm like, ah, this tastes a little too good. But there is a class of foods that are called excitotoxins. And for the listener, if you want to dig into Dr. Russell Blaylock's work, he's one of the pioneers in how food additives affect our neurochemistry and our biology. Really, really interesting stuff. Oh, for sure. And also there's that great book, The Pleasure Trap, that get, we've mentioned this before. Um, and one of our guests kept, oh, it was, I think, Natasha when we do did our episode with her and her husband and she and kept talking, yeah yeah they kept talking about the pleasure trap which is also another interesting episode but she was talking about a different type of pleasure trap i think the pleasure trap is a great book mainly about food but it can also pertain to other elements of your life so we'll link to that book as well as the episode that we're referencing for you to check out too so there's going to be a lot of resources in our show notes today <laughs> The next principle of intuitive eating is to cope with your emotions with kindness and recognizing that food restriction, both physically and mentally, can in and of itself trigger loss of control, which can feel like emotional eating. And this to me feels like it's so important. I was kind of making light of the COVID response, how a lot of people were indulging in food and maybe still are. You know, I've I found more balance with myself. And I actually went through all different phases. I mean, thinking back over what I've done since quarantine happened in March, I've gone through a lot of different places and ups and downs with food. And it, it is really important to understanding your when you're emotionally eating and finding kind ways to comfort, nurture yourself, resolve issues. Emotions like anxiety, loneliness, boredom, and anger come up for us in many different stages of our life, but especially now, and they can trigger us. Knowing that food is not going to fix these feelings is really important. It can give you short-term comfort and distraction and numbness, but it's not solving anything. And I really love this point of like tapping into your relationship with why you're eating. Number eight is to respect your body, accepting your genetic blueprint. And I love this point. Just as a person with a shoe size of eight would not to expect to realistically squeeze into a size six 
it is equally futile and uncomfortable to have a similar expectation about body size. That's a beautiful way of phrasing it because a lot of us, myself included, have tried to shape our bodies in a way that we thought were pleasing to others of what we thought we should look like. And I think this is why food can get so complicated because in my head, I have often equated like food with gaining weight. And I think a lot of people do. And so that restriction can come up as like, well, I don't want to gain weight, so I shouldn't eat these foods. And it causes this whole trigger here. So yes, you should listen to yourself intuitively, like all these principles, but like also recognizing that being critical about your body shape is not helpful and all bodies deserve dignity. Number nine is movement. And I love that this is brought up too, is the importance of moving your body, shifting your focus to how it feels to move your body rather than the calorie burning effect of exercise. We could probably do a whole separate episode on this one, but I'm glad that that's brought up. And the last principle in here is to honor your health with gentle nutrition, making food choices that honor your taste buds while making you feel good. Remember that you don't have to eat perfectly to be healthy. And not just having one snack or meal or day of eating is not going to throw you off, make you deficient. It's what you eat over time consistently that matters. And that's really key too, but, but also not so simple. So with all of this said, it's a journey. And Jason and I, I guess, serve as a reminder that we're on that too, even though this is a huge part of our lives. We're not nutritionists or doctors, medical professionals. Jason's a chef or has worked as a chef a lot. And I've studied a lot of these things too and practiced them. But it's a complex thing. And I don't know anyone who feels like they have it all figured out. I think there's a promise and there's like this like myth that like, if you just figure out the perfect way to eat, your life will be great and you'll never feel bad about yourself again. And you'll look perfect and you'll feel perfect and you'll live a long life. There's a lot of that false hope. And I don't feel like that served me. I feel what serves me is the intuitive eating and and thinking about these principles with every meal that I eat versus trying to stick to some regiment. And certainly Jason and I are committed to the vegan way of life. So we have that as a bit of a boundary. But within that, we are fluid with how we're eating. I I should say I am. I'm not going to speak for you, Jason, but I, I perceive you as having that fluidity. I know We've talked about gluten and both of us are mostly gluten-free. And on that note, I had some glutinous pizza the other day and I was a little concerned, like, am I going to feel awful? And I really didn't feel that bad. And I think part of it is, A, I'm not allergic to gluten. I'm not celiac. I'm sensitive, just like I'm sensitive to almonds. But I can have gluten and almonds in moderation and on occasion and feel okay. And sometimes my symptoms are a little bit more severe than others, and I'm not going to go into it, but you know, I have a variety of different reactions to those foods. But my point being is that I still eat them from time to time. And Jason, you said the other day, like if you wanted a bagel, you would eat it and it might be worth feeling like crap. But like that to me is kind of intuitive eating, that you're choosing to eat something because it brings you that joy. And it's okay if you don't feel perfect all the time. Yeah. I've noticed something interesting. And I mean, interesting how the mind and the body interface with one another. And it's this, if I'm going to go out and get said proverbial bagel, right, when we're in New York, whatever it is, or I'm going to go to Pura Vida, which is one of our favorite pizzerias here in LA, whatever city we go to, you know, there's a treat, let's just call it that. 
rather than broadcasting to my body that I'm going to beat myself up for over this choice. I've noticed that when I practice fully indulging and owning my choice, like really being empowered in that choice, that my body reacts differently. If I go into an experience like, oh, I know I'm going to feel awful oh, and I'm already kind of starting to beat myself up a little bit because I know this isn't the best thing, but I really want to try it. But ah, fuck me. Why can't I have better self-control? My experience of the food is drastically different. If I go in with a preconceived notion that I'm going to feel bad, that I'm going to beat myself up and all those things. So I've noticed that the mental management and how I am talking about the food, how I am energetically feeling about the experience, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but I have noticed that when I go into it with positive, joyful excitement and not that talk about beating myself or being punitive with my choice, not only do I enjoy it more, Whitney, but I notice that my body reacts digestively differently to the experience. The mind-body connection is, to me, a very real thing. I mean, we can go into I mean, meditation and, and how our emotional reactions affect our hormones. I mean, this is not a new concept that the mind and the body have this really intimate relationship, but I guess in terms of guilt and shame and, quote, I guess making bad choices, to put that in an umbrella category, I think if we take the badness and we, we practice removing the shame and the guilt, I think we can indulge from time to time in things that might be, quote, less than ideal, but still enjoy them and honor them and therefore not feel like shit afterward. And so as I practice that, I've noticed there's a huge difference when I go into it, as I said, with joy, excitement, curiosity versus trying to beat myself up over it. Absolutely. I, I feel the same way. And it's that ongoing tuning in. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we beat ourselves up too much. So it's been a good reminder as my stomach starts to growl, I'm ready for, <laughs> ready for my next meal. Yeah. It certainly <laughs> has um, made me want some food. And actually, this is a good time to do a little brand shout out as we do at the end of our episodes. We've, we've talked about a few brands and we're going to list all of them in our show notes. But one brand that feels like a great fit for this is Bio Optimizers. And Jason hasn't tried it out yet, but they, the brand sent us, me and Jason, a package of their products. And the one that I've been using recently is their digestive enzymes, which are called masszymes. And they're digestive enzymes for men and women. Enzymes have a lot of great benefits, digestion being one of the more prominent benefits, uh, but they can help you absorb vitamins. They can repair damaged intestines. They can um, help you absorb amino acids and things like that. And they've worked really well. We've experimented with a lot of brands. I'm super curious for you to experiment with them, but I've been taking them a lot recently. They're great. They are vegan. Their capsules are plant-based and their enzymes are fermented using plants. Uh, not all of their products are vegan. So if you do check out their website, make sure to double check. Some of them have, I think, like eggs or I think some of their products might have bone broth. So yeah, those are the, one, the enzymes I've been experimenting with. We've also taken the enzymes from Sun Warrior. We've tried a lot of different enzymes. We could probably do a whole show, but to give you the one that I'm currently uh, experimenting with and, and enjoying and finding them really helpful is bio-optimizers. Well, I want to give a little bit of background to Whitney uh, as to maybe the listener has never used digestive enzymes before of what the benefit is. And, and from my understanding, there are different digestive enzymes like amylase, protease, lipase 
that one can use in the body to help break down food more efficiently. So as Whitney mentioned, if we're eating glutinous foods or things that maybe our bodies can't necessarily process too well, digestive enzymes are just kind of like a boost that add more of those enzymes into your body to help food break down. Is there another brand that you want to shout out, Jason, for this segment? Oh, yeah. I want to shout out something new that I just got yesterday. So I'm going to bring you some to try, Whitney. Okay. Oh, I see how it is. So we both get different products. And um, yeah, actually, that's a good reason for us to see each other next. You can bring me some of that, those baked goods, and I can give you some enzymes in exchange, Chase. <laughs> what else are you going to bring me? So there's a um, brand that we worked with. We did a panel for something called Startup CPG, which stands for Consumer Packaged Goods. And we had this great talk with this panel and emerging brands and whatnot. So they, one of the brands that they work with is called 12 Tides Ocean Snacks, and they make a, a line of puffed seaweed chips. And the cool thing about this brand is that they get all of their seaweed from regenerative ocean farms. I didn't even know this was a thing. So the snacks use organic kelp from these regenerative ocean farms uh, that are exclusive to North America. And these farms in the ocean remove carbon, reverse acidification, uh, support marine life, and produce seaweed, which is one of the most nutrient-dense foods that has no pesticides or fertilizers or anything like that. The other cool thing about 12 Tides is they uh, are USDA organic, and they have 100% compostable bio-based packaging. So uh, the flavors I received, they have a sea salt, they have a chili, and then they have everything, which is like an everything bagel. So I literally, literally just got these yesterday, and I'm excited to do a, a taste test on them. Uh, I'm going to do... Actually, one, one thing that I want to do, Whitney, is start doing taste test videos again, because the last time I did a taste test, people were like, we really love your facial expressions, and you're so animated, and blah, blah, blah. Well, don't forget, we have one on our Pinterest, which we're starting to put some more emphasis on. We did a taste test of the Kefla chocolate, the CBD chocolates. Right, right. So yes, we have that. And I think it's also on, on our TikTok. Did I turn that into a TikTok? I think I did. You did. Yeah. So I agree, Jason. We should be doing more taste tests. They do tend to be you tasting and me recording. So we'll be intentional. <laughs> I think it's just easy for me to record you versus myself. But um, I'll try to get on camera too because I like test, taste tests as well. Yeah. So I'll bring you a sample of these these 12 Tides chips. Shout out to 12 Tides. Shout out to Startup CPG, our friend Daniel, who runs that organization. But yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm excited because there seems to be a lot more products, Whitney, coming out that are dedicated to uh, regenerative agriculture. We talked about this on our uh, recent episode with our friend Max Goldberg about organic living and how there are new certifications about regenerative farming that are just starting to come out in the food industry. So it's cool to see 12 Tides doing regenerative ocean farming. So I'm super excited about that. And I love the fact that they're mission-driven too. Well, I can't wait to try them. Before we wrap, we're going to do a quick round of Frequently Asked Queries, which is a segment we do at the end of each of our episodes lately to share some of the things that we've been coming across through Google Analytics. So these are key phrases that people have been typing in that may or may not lead them to our website. So we usually do a round of funny, serious, and interesting. I'm going to try to find one, some that like relate to this subject matter. Let me see here. I'm looking over my, my spreadsheet behind the scenes. 
Which would be food or intuitive eating or what do you mean? Sure. Uh-huh. If I can find them. What would you like to start with, Jason? Funny, serious, or interesting? Let's go serious. Okay. Well, actually, this <laughs> this one ties it. I feel like, did we mention this one already? But just in case we haven't, the query was about EPA, DHA, omega-3 supplement. I mean, is it a question or it's just a sentence? Well, somebody's typing it in because they're curious about this subject. Oh, they're asking like, what's a good supplement? Oh, I see. Not necessarily. This is the challenge with the queries. We never know exactly why somebody's typing something into Google, but... Yeah, we don't know. This is the phrase that we have. Yeah, the two things that come to mind are the two supplements that I have used in the past and recommend for EPA and DHA. So just a little bit of background really quickly. I think I've talked about this in a previous episode, but it bears repeating. When people talk about omega-3 fatty acids in plant-based diets, it's typically only restricted to high levels of ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, which is omega-6s, omega-9s. The omega-3s that are more beneficial for brain health, brain function, cognition, allaying depression, all those things, are actually EPA and DHA, which are really hard to get on a vegan diet. Why? Because they're mostly in ocean fish, shrimp, krill, things like that. However, there are brands that synthesize EPA and DHA from microalgae. So since we're not swimming in the water and eating you know, metric tons of algae like blue whales are, if you are plant-based or vegan, you can get high levels of assimilable EPA and DHA from these microalgae. So the, two, the brand I actually take right now, Whitney, is a Symbiotica. They have a EPA DHA blend. It's super delicious. And the person who turned me onto this brand is our mutual friend who's a clinical vegan nutritionist and previous guest, Paige Snyder. We'll also link to her episode. She said, hey, I have this new supplement line that I love. I think they're awesome and super legit. You should check it out. So I've actually been taking Symbiotica for, Symbiotica for like three months now. And that's my go-to EPA DHA supplement. Excellent. I knew that you would have a good answer for that one. All right. Next up, interesting or funny? Uh, let's do interesting and then land on funny. Okay. <laughs> oh, this was kind of fascinating. This actually wasn't a, a Google query. This was something that was coming up in like some popular topics. I have to look this up, but maybe this is just the name brand. Maybe it's not as cool as I thought. I'm teasing you now. I have to check and see if this is even vegan. What the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, okay. They do have a vegan version. I just liked the name of this, but I have zero experience with it. But somebody typed in the, the phrase ghost protein. Oh, I know ghost protein. And it's so cute. Yeah, their branding, their branding is amazing. Have you tried it before? I have tried it, yes. And I'll tell you where I tried it. I tried it at the LA Fit Expo. The last time the LA Fit Expo was here at the convention center, I went and Ghost Protein had a big booth. Their branding is so adorable. They have a great logo, great color scheme. And I did try their vegan protein and it was, it was okay. It was not like knock my socks off, you know, rip my thong in half, throw me on the floor. And, you know, it wasn't like, whoa, I need to like bathe in this. It was good. Okay. I like the honesty. But you know what? It's also one of those things though, too, where I feel like, you know, not a humble brag. We've been in the game so long and we've tried so many products that I feel like something as ubiquitous as protein, where I've just eaten so much of it over the years, it's got to be really outstanding to blow me away. I agree. We love Sun Warrior. They've sponsored our show before, so we'll shout them out too. We'll, we're going to link to all of this. Uh, certainly don't mean to overwhelm you, the listener. We try to limit the amount of categories 
like uh, brands within a category that we recommend. I'm actually about to do a campaign with a, a protein powder. So I'll share the results. I'm going to try some protein powders from another brand, which I won't mention until I try them out. But uh, I'll keep you posted on it. But they have some really cool ingredients. I'm really excited about it. And I think that's actually what makes me interested in trying different brands is when they do something unique versus like everybody doing the same thing, but like slight slight variants and like cool branding. <laughs> Sun Warrior, I still to this day have not found anything that tastes as good as their salted caramel protein powder. That is so incredibly good. It's making my mouth water. Yeah, you're ride or die for that flavor, aren't you? It's so good. It's so good. So if I had to shout out a favorite protein powder at this very moment, it would be them. But this is also the time we record and and hopefully I'll have a, a new experience with this other brand that I can recommend. Okay, one last query before we go and eat a meal after this lovely conversation. We get the funny category. What do I have today? Do you have something bizarre, dirty, strange, WTF category? I'm not going to mention, but there's so many dirty queries that we get. (laughs) And I screenshot them and and share them, but I'm not going to talk about them on air because they're... Too uncomfortable? Too uncomfortable? They're too uncomfortable for me. Probably not you, Jason. I'm sure you would love to. Well, we covered that in the episode with (laughs) Natalie Rivera about sexuality is that I am, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, freaky deaky. So it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to surprise me with things like that. True. Okay. This isn't food related, but it is about being uncomfortable. <laughs> it's making me laugh. Songs that make you uncomfortable, Jason. <laughs> what in the hell? Songs that make me uncomfortable. Oh, goodness. This is a fascinating question. I'll tell you what. I actually... <laughs> I, I'm now I'm trying to remember what song, but I remember being like a preteen... And hearing songs about sex made me so uncomfortable. Like like I Want Your Sex by George Michael, like that kind of stuff. How does that one go? It goes, I want your sex. Well, first of all, the song Let's Talk About Sex used to make me very uncomfortable. Oh, that's more your era. That's more your era. I heard it when my parents were in the car. There's another one. I want to sex you up. Oh my God. You just brought up Color Me Bad. Listener, this is officially the first Color Me Bad reference on This Might Get Uncomfortable. You're welcome. If you uh, are perhaps a millennial or Gen Z, if you're a millennial or Gen Z, please Google. Actually, you know what the hell with it? We're going to put the wiki profile. If Color Me Bad still has a website, we're putting that shit in there. Let me see. Color Wait, I want me you to bad. Say, I'll find the website. You sing the song. Okay. It goes, I want to sex you up. TikTok, you don't stop, stop to the TikTok, you don't stop. <laughs> hey, beautiful lady, I need you tonight. Yeah, it's so good. And the one guy like didn't have eyebrows, and he kind of looked, he kind of looked like George Michael's younger brother. Like he was like he was like, okay, we're gonna make this one guy look like George Michael ish. Anyway, wow. color me I bad. I think they do have a website. Color me ColorMeBadMusic.com. Oh my God. Maybe we can have one of the Color Me Bad members on. Maybe this is a... Anyway, so that used to make you feel uncomfortable. Any song about sex, like, yeah, those songs I would hear on the radio. But there was one other that I swear, I think if I'm thinking of the right one, I heard it yesterday when I was getting frozen yogurt, which brings this full circle. I heard a song 
that I hadn't heard since my childhood or like maybe not very often. And I feel like it was one of those sex songs that made me uncomfortable. And if I can remember... May I fling a guess? Yes, there was a few. Was it, damn, I wish I was no, your lover? That's a great song. Who was that? Who was that, by the way? That was a great song. That damn, did not make I me wish. uncomfortable. Oh, Sophie B. Hawkins yeah, sang that song. I Sophie love her. B., dude. Yeah. Whoa, that's such that a good was song. Really good. It is. But why would that make me uncomfortable? Well, I don't know. No, it was like it was like a color me bad type of vibe. Like it was those songs that were like it's on the tip of my tongue. I have to go look this up. Like the year and like any songs about sex. I want to know. Year. Yeah, I want to know what the hell. Like now, <laughs> I'm really any, curious. Are there any songs that made you uncomfortable or make you uncomfortable? The now? first song that I remember feeling really uncomfortable. I must have been, I don't even know, uh, you know, five years old, maybe. I'm just a ballpark guess. And I remember my cousin, Jenny, who was closest to me in age. So we were more like brothers and sisters growing up. And she would play vinyl records for me. Like actually between the vinyl that my mom and dad had and the stuff that my cousin Jenny would play, like I got a really good musical education. And I remember the one song that scared the shit out of me was I Am the Walrus by the Beatles. (laughs) And it was that part where like the voices start changing near the end. And like there was this thing of like, you know, know, I am the walrus. Like it's this weird like voice changing thing that John Lennon does in in one part of the song. And I got scared as hell from I am the walrus. So and I I remember years ago going back and listening to it and being like, oh, it wasn't that bad. But somehow my five year old brain was terrified of the walrus. Like, who is the walrus? And what does cuckoo cuckoo even mean? <laughs> what are they even talking about? And then I was like, oh, there was lots of drugs. Lots of drugs and LSD and mushrooms happening in the Beatles. So that explained a lot, which not a bad thing. As George Carlin once said, greatest comedian ever, in my opinion. Uh, you listen to all that music. He's like, hell of a lot of drugs there. And I'd have to agree. A lot of drugs make great music. Nothing to take away from the Beatles, but you take four great musicians, you put them on psychedelic drugs, you get I Am the Walrus. Yep. Well, I haven't quite narrowed down the song, but maybe I'll surprise you one day, Jason, with it. I did, however, find a phenomenal list of 90 songs about sex. (laughs) But because I'm really hungry, I'm not going to go through all of them. Can you just pull out one for me, please? Just as a throwback. First of all, a song that I love, but I, I didn't get into until a few years ago. Like, Pony by Genuine is a great song. Great, great song. Dude, Magic Mike brought that song back from the annals of history. Yes. I had forgotten about that song for like 15 years. And then Magic Mike comes out. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about that song. I know. I'm Too Sexy, Right Said Fred was great song. Great, great song. I really enjoyed that song. Let's see. This song was weird. Sex and Candy by Marcy Playground. I wouldn't say it made me uncomfortable, but it's a weird song. It made no sense. Hanging around (laughs) downtown by myself and there she was like disco lemonade. What the fuck is disco lemonade? Don't know. There she was. Like, okay, again, more drugs. You know what song I really love from that era, though, that is still a showstopper to this point is... I get so weak in the knees, I can hardly speak, I lose all control. SWV, Sisters with Voices, such a good jam. Another song I liked but felt really, I didn't want to tell anybody I liked it. It made me uncomfortable, but not in a a bad way. I think it was like (laughs) 
<laughs> probably probably part of my like uh what's the word the coming of age or whatever was close closer by nine inch nails which is still a phenomenal song i liked it but i felt like bad for liking it you know <laughs> like i shouldn't like it you're like 12 you're like i wanna fuck you like an animal it's like oh whoa what what <laughs> what kind of animal Yep, I remember listening to that song in my room and be like, wow, this is intense, but I like... Totally, totally. And when that shit would come on, the rock station, we had WRIF in Detroit, <laughs> and I'd be driving around with my mom in the car, I'd be like, change. <laughs> oh, yeah. You did, you did not want... <laughs> Solo, I would rock the fuck out to Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> yeah, but but there was... Yeah, when my mom was in the car, I'm like, I can't, you know, yeah... I want to fuck you like an animal. I want to feel you from the inside. Like, I not listening to that with my mother. Yep, that song. It's a great song. Also, I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. Also kind of loved, kind of made me uncomfortable as a kid. <laughs> like, you know, it's a great song. But yeah. like, we would sing it. I remember singing it on the bus Stop as it. kids. Stop singing it. Singing it on the bus with my friends. Because they would play it on the radio while we were like on the bus ride home from school. And we'd sing it out loud. And looking back, I'm like, we were kids. Yeah, especially the part where he goes, throw your clothes <laughs> on the floor. I'm going to take my clothes off too. <laughs> like, you're a little 12-year-old ass screaming that in the bus. Like, what the fuck? But you know what's funny is kids do that these days too. On TikTok, I'll see videos of like kids like, six years old singing. Actually, there was one I saw the other day that was really funny. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Along with that that one that we started the episode with about how to make s'mores with the ice cream cone. If I can find that video, I will, I will also put that in the show notes. But there was one TikTok I found, actually, which is kind of funny because that's how one of those, that song starts. It's like one of those salt and pepper, like, oh, I want to sex you up starts with like the words TikTok. It's like TikTok, you don't stop. That's right. Anyways, if I find there was one video I saw recently of this little kid belting out the lyrics to a song. Oh, and there's also the classic Louis C.K. video. It's it's from uh, it's like a clip from one of his TV shows, and it's like his daughter singing Missy Elliott. No, it's um my it's how's it go like something my, my crack my my, my legs yeah. my crack. <laughs> My pussy and my back. Yeah. Yep. It, that's a great clip because the parent, the little girl, like, have you seen this, Jason? The little girl, like, yes. makes up a dance routine to it. Yes. And the parents yeah. know that she doesn't realize what she's saying and they're yeah. so uncomfortable, but they're, like, proud of her from making up. Totally. Dance. Oh, wow. We could go down a whole rabbit hole, but we're going to stop there because I really got to go eat and I, I had plans that are being pushed back. So... Yeah, in closing, hashtag 90s R&B forever. Yep. So, dear listener, thank you for getting uncomfortable with us. Thank you for riding the waves of the tangents as we improvise these conversations and uh, and come from the heart and come from the gut and come from, well, God knows where. We don't even know where most of the stuff comes from. We are just exploring life as you are. So, in your exploration of life, if you want to access all of the resources that we mentioned today, they will all be in the show notes for you at wellevator.com. You can also go direct to our podcast website, which is podcast.wellevator.com. And all of the social media handles for more of our resources and memes and free resources and all the good things we share, you can find us at Wellevator on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, Twitter. Again, it's W E L L 
evatr.com. And uh, until next time, Whitney, enjoy your lunch. I'm actually going to go listen to I'm the Walrus and see if it uh, scares me at all. If it still makes you uncomfortable? And see if it still makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to really feel into it and uh, and enjoy it over some cold leftover pizza. Yeah. So until next time, dear listener, thanks for getting uncomfortable. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will connect with you next time. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 